This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganampake Pagan. The Singapore Writers' Festival is once again upon us. This year's edition runs from the 2nd to the 11th of November and once again features a massive lineup of writers, thinkers, and artists from all across the world. On the show today, I am speaking to one of the featured writers at this year's SWF. Intan Paramadita is an Indonesian author and a lecturer in media and film studies at Macquarie University in Sydney. Her novel, Gantayangan, was selected as Tempo Magazine's Best Literary Fiction in 2017 and her short story collection, Apple and Knife, was published this year in Australia. Intan, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Um, I read Apple and Knife over the weekend. I read it in one sitting and then I had to go back and read some of those stories mm. again because I enjoyed them so much. Um, talk to oh, me thank about... thank you so much. Oh no, they really are quite something. Talk to me about how this collection came about. Oh, um, yeah, sure. So Apple and Knife um, is a collection of short stories translated by Stephen J. Epstein and it was... Uh, drawn from two books. One is it's Sihir Perempuan, which was published in 2005, which um, is a collection of stories about women. And then the other one is um, a book called Kumpulan Budak Setan. We would translate it as um, The Devil Slaves Club. It's a, it's an anthology of short stories by um, Eka Kurniawan, Ugoran Prasad, and myself. Basically, it's it's a collection of horror stories. Given that some of these stories were written before, did you do or make any significant changes to them before publishing them in this collection? No, I mean, well, there there are uh, two stories um, that have never be never appeared anywhere else. Uh, yeah, but but the others are quite. They're from two thousand five or two thousand. 10 and I there are some changes and and we basically thought about you know how to make this more relatable to uh, people who don't understand the Indonesian context minor changes but yeah there are changes here and there and uh, it's more of a collaborative process where Stephen he would propose some changes and and then I said um what about this you know so so we we had an intense dialogue and then the editor the editors of Brow Books also jumped in and then they suggested changes here and there so I feel like I mean we know that a film is a collaborative yes uh, project um, because there you know it's it's clear there's editor there's a uh, uh, director of photography and so on but i i do think that a, f- a fiction work is is also collaborative it's not it's not really you know it it wouldn't happen if there's no editor or translator and and even proofreaders no you're absolutely right and i'm so glad you said that because more often than not we talk about works of fiction uh, even works of nonfiction mm. as individual efforts because we Mm. only ever mention the author's name. I think you're absolutely right in saying that the author crafts the work, but of course the role of the editor is always underestimated to a great extent. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And then I've I've worked with um, great editors, um, Elizabeth Breyer and Sam Cooney from Brow Books. And then my UK editor, Ellie 
Steele from Havel Secker, she's also wonderful. Although she she didn't really edit the the collection for the UK edition, it's really you know the Brow Books editing work. But we'll be lo- working uh, closely for my novel, which will come out in the UK in 2020. So talk to me about the stories in this collection. Reading them, I have to say, they do what every short story should. They kind of pull you in very quickly. There is a moment of curiosity. I want to find out more. And then suddenly Mm. you hit me in the face with something unexpected, which is great, right? And I haven't had enough of a chance to realize that has happened until it's too late. And which which is what I look for in any good short story. But I want to talk to you about my favorite one, which is Uh, Mm. The Blind Woman Without a Toe, because God knows we've all seen and read and come across so many retellings of the Cinderella story. And this one is from the perspective of one of the ugly stepsisters. And it's wonderful. It's one of the most unique retellings I've come across. So talk to me about how that story Mm. came about. I grew up with fairy tales. And um, I love, especially like um, uh, the Brothers Grimm, I've, I I love their stories because they're very, I, I found that they're very wicked and, and with a, a lot of uh, blood and dark. gore. Yes. Um, yeah. So the, uh, not the Disney version. So the, I, I love the, 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 the older version because it's, I, I think it incorporates a lot of horror elements. Um, but then still in fairy tales, women are often, you know, they they either end in marriage or they're, they are punished. Like, um, for instance, the evil queen in Snow White, she's being forced to dance with hot iron shoes. Correct. Um, so, it, it, yeah, so women, they face horrible fate in, in fairy tales. So I, I've, when I wrote this story, I felt like I wanted to tell something different from from a different perspective. And I asked questions like, for instance, if women are so evil, if some women are so evil, the punished ones, why? Why have they turned into monsters? And who defined them as monsters? What what kind of environment, what kind of social structure influence the the these women to be engaged in monstrous acts so i felt that i had to you know use the the conventions um and at the same time tweak them to talk about um women in the patriarchal world where they are easily replaced and disposed of and i feel that stories if if i focus on evil women or women who are ignored or women who are stigmatized by the society, I feel like perhaps we could find a way to disrupt the system that that confines or oppresses these women. We share, between Malaysia and Indonesia, we share many of the same monsters mm. and ghouls and demons, maybe in slightly different forms, but I think they stem from mm. the same place. And I was discussing this with a friend the other day, and so many of our Monsters and demons are female characters. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Pontianak. Yeah, Hantu Tete, Pontianak. There's a whole bunch of them that are female Mm. characters. And we were saying, yes, I mean, it probably stems from the male fear. Yeah, yeah, um, I agree. I mean, one of the stories there um, in in the collection is about um, Nyerorokido, or the Queen of the South Sea. 
and she is she's like she is the source of of um of fear because she's very powerful and at the same time she is also highly sexualized in in the Japanese myth and in popular culture so so the story the story goes like this all kings all Japanese kings had a sexual intercourse with um the queen of the south sea to preserve the political stability of of the uh, Mataram kingdom so so you know it's it's about sexuality as uh, a political tool to maintain power so she is she transfers her her power to these kings and and in order to um to preserve uh, the king's powers and at the same time when she appears in um you know folklore as well as popular culture such as films we have a lot of queen of the south sea films she's always you know that scantily clad woman who's like super a beautiful and super sexy yeah it's the same thing with uh, Pontiana like uh, we, we in Indonesia we have a lot of Kuntilana film so so women are either portrayed as um highly sexual so you know or or they are um the the monsters uh, they they uh, evoke the fear in the society about women's sexuality the one thing that comes across in the stories in this collection is your voice or rather a very strong mm-hmm. female voice in the telling of these stories which is mm-hmm. something quite rare in contemporary fiction i find and so it is incredibly refreshing but talk to me about why you decided to use this genre to tell these feminist tales so i'm um going to talk about uh two things first of all the the pers- uh the women's perspective and then the other one is about uh horror so in terms of the women's perspective i feel like um because i grew up reading works by women writers i did my bachelor's um thesis on mary shelley's frankenstein and i feel that oh, wonderful yeah, I feel that she could, um, and that was probably the initial attraction to horror, the horror genre. I feel that um, she could actually um, pose her critique on the um, the ideologies um, um, of the Romantic era through a woman's perspective. Um, so I started reading more works by women writers. I found in the 90s, well, when I was in college, I found Margaret Atwood. Um, Ayn Sexton and you know, a lot of writers and a lot of their writings are quite dark. It feels that there's a lot of anger, but how could you not be angry? You know, if if you um, see um, all these structures that confine women, being angry is 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 very. I would say natural. Um, so yeah, I was very much influenced by women writers, and I thought, and at that time in Indonesia, I felt that women's perspective. We didn't have a lot of work for grounding women's perspective. Um, we did have um, some women writers like Ayu Utami, uh, but I feel that it's it's still very much dominated by by the male voice. So that's one agenda. And the other one, I feel that horror, um, um, I'm a big fan of horror literature <laughs> and horror films. So maybe that's, that's, yeah, that's something to begin with. And I feel that horror as a genre, it 
disrupts our assumptions of reality, uh, of what we believe as normal. Whenever we see a horror film, we we tend to question our reality. Well, is this... Um, is this normal? Is this what I'm supposed to believe, what I'm supposed to see? And I feel like there's a connection between that kind of questioning of reality with the question you pose um, in terms of feminist perspective. I feel that feminist perspective is about questioning, interrogating. It's about deconstructing. So in a way, I feel like there is a connection between feminism and horror in that sense. No, I think you're absolutely right. And it does come across um, in a lot of your stories because it's the horror element, it's the mythological, the folklore element. And of course, it's subverting this mm -hmm. notion of the female character in folklore and making them disobedient. In your stories, you do dabble with the notion of the disobedient woman. Talk to me about mm -hmm. that within the cultural context of where you grew up. I think, well, it started with... Um me observing um, the women around me, the, the closest was my mother. I felt that she, um, when I was a teenager, I felt that she was really weird. She had the, this troubled relationship with my father and she tried to, I think, to navigate her way in the society, but she didn't have enough support system like, like I have now. She was depressed and she was really weird. She, she was... I would say she was confined by her, the patriarchal structure, but she didn't realize it. And, and a lot of her actions were, um, you know, I, I couldn't understand it. I just thought she was a bad mother. She was weird and she was monstrous, I think. And then I started reading things um, in college. I started reading uh, books about, uh, you know, feminist theories. And then right. I looked at my own mother and then I thought, um, Okay, so probably there's a reason why she why she's a monster. The first thing I noticed about Indonesian women, how they are like if you are privileged, if if you if you have the whole support system, if if you your you know your friends, your family, if they understand um, what resistance means, what you know, the position of women in the society, that's that's great for you. But a lot of Women in Indonesia, especially at that time when I grew up, they didn't have this support system. So they, they tried to fight in the most subtle way. Um, and per perhaps they, res uh, they, they used some techniques, like the cruel techniques to survive. Um, so I thought what I needed to do was to understand how these women fight in their own way. Not in the, let's say, the Hillary Clinton way or right. the Taylor Swift kind of way. They thought in in specific ways that were very much influenced by their environment. I feel like even though we had, I, I grew up during the Reformasi, the political reform in 1998, like resistance was a word circulated in the public sphere. But then it's, it's very different in terms of women. Yes, we do have... Um, you know, some middle-class feminist women uh, in the women's movement. But the majority of, of women in Indonesia, they do not enjoy the kind of privilege that uh, a few women had. And then even in literature, we, we think that in literature, women 
they have more power to say, let's say, in, in comparison to other fields, like in, if women work in corporations, for instance. But no, not really. I feel like um, even until now, Indonesian literature is very much dominated uh, um, by men or male standards. Um, we ignore a lot of uh, works by women just because we think that these women write about um, trifles, you know, like, oh, it's just, you know, they talk about personal relationship. It's so womanly. It's not epic. It's not about politics, nation, blah, blah, blah. But it's just that we don't want to look, you know, to, to really close read the work. We just dismiss it as the so-called women's writing. So, you know, these kind of things, the, the obvious ones, the obvious challenge, challenges faced by women, and then the, the, the more subtle ones, these are the things that I feel we need to expose and delve into. Intan, I want to go back to something you just said about, I think, the cultural context of mm. feminism and the way women express that. And of course, mm -hmm. that is often not spoken about because I guess we live in such a globalized society when stories mm -hmm. of the plight of women get out into the world, people tend to prescribe a singular way to solve those problems without, without always taking into consideration the cultural context. And mm -hmm. I was yeah. wondering how, because you've lived abroad for so many years, and I was wondering how mm -hmm. that's kind of shifted your perspective on feminism and the way, say, we need to tackle these issues in Malaysia and Indonesia? I think being abroad really, it has really made me realize that there's, there's no singular articulation of, of feminism. There's no one way of being a feminist. I mean, it, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've been talking about uh, Hillary Clinton kind of feminism, which emerged from a specific context. But if you go to um, places like Indonesia, you will see a different, a very different form of feminism. So, for instance, in Indonesia, we have the um, female ulama, um, female Muslim leaders, and then they um, they really think differently, and they try to negotiate feminism and Islam. And they issued um, they they have this national. They just had this national congress of of uh, female ulama. They issued fatwa, and the fatwa it's very different from from the male ulama. For instance, <laughs> they issued a fatwa on um, polygamy. So polygamy um, is haram, is forbidden. I mean, it's it's really interesting. And then they also talked about um, the destruction of natural environment, and it's and they argue that it's against the teaching of Islam. And also the teaching of, uh, you know, the, the ideology of, of feminism as well. If you don't care about the environment, it, it's, it is really about your perception of the world, of, of how you connect with others as well. It's your ethical position. And I started to learn about all these different ways of thinking, different articulations. And then I guess being abroad, it, it makes me feel it has made me become, you know, more sensitive about third world feminism and, you know, feminisms instead of feminism. There are so many different articulations of, of that. And I, I do think that we need to create more a more regional network 
So because there are a lot of issues that that are similar in Indonesia and Malaysia, like for instance in the in the issue of hijab, mm-hmm. where yes, it is it is um um it is a choice for women to wear a hijab, but in Indonesia now it increasingly it it's become the norm. So women feel pressured to wear the hijab to express their piety in public because because of this conservatism in in the public sphere. And I think it's the same thing with Malaysia. And and in in the other parts of the world, it's it's completely different. Like hijab marks the stigmatization of Muslim women. Muslim women are oppressed, and we need to defend the right of Muslim women to wear the hijab. Whereas in Indonesia and Malaysia, I think while we do that, like defending the right for women to wear the hijab, we also need to be aware that, you know, the hijab has become a way to police women's bodies. You 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 are not a good Muslim if you if you don't wear a hijab. And in Indonesia, interestingly, if if you wear the hijab but your hijab is not long enough, like it it doesn't cover you enough, wow, um, you will be stigmatized as well. Yeah. So so yeah, it's, there are a lot of specific issues, I think, but they can be compared and, and we could actually expand the network within the region, Southeast Asian region. And and, and, and what was interesting, I just want to bring it back to the book because there was another story that mm. I particularly loved, which was blood. And mm. I think about these issues that we experience on a day to day and tie it back to what you just said. I mean, the idea of the sanitary pad, the idea of menstrual blood mm. and how that in itself, that notion that day to day experience is actually a matter of nationhood. It is an epic story. Mm. It may seem simple and basic, but it affects everything around us. I feel that women's body, especially during the time um, a turbulent time, I would say, like in Indonesia right now, we uh, it's, it's the aftermath of authoritarianism, but Indonesia is still trying hard to define um, what it's going to be, what the nation um, would be like. So there, there are a lot of contesting voices and women's body is used to it is used as a tool to imagine the nation. Right. So, for instance, like, uh, oh, we should be a more Islamic nation. And then, you know, uh, and this is articulated by pressuring women to wear the hijab because that's Indonesia. I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing in Malaysia as well. So women, in a way, they, they become sort of symbols. They become tools for ideas of nationhood. And it usually ends up being the oppression of women that becomes the tool for nationhood, right? They are used in a way to kind of display piety, for example. Meanwhile, the men, both religious and otherwise, go on and do whatever they want. Inta, tell me this. What were the guiding factors in putting this collection together? Was there one Mm. specific thing that you wanted to say? Actually, I think... All of my stories are about horror and feminism, so it's kind of... <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah. Um, I guess it, it's really practical. Um, I would choose stories that I love most. And then, um, and then yeah, and then I, I, I told Stephen, my translator, um, yeah, maybe you could work with these stories. And then he said, um, how about if we add more stories? 
And I said, oh, the other stories, they're all bad. <laughs> I, I don't want to see them. And then actually I, I excluded blood because I, I didn't, I felt that the story was too, um, too vulgar or too, too raw. Um, but Stephen said um, he loved the story and then he translated it. And I, and I, I sort of, I started to see the story in a, in a different way. Yeah, but actually, initially, it was excluded. So you need to thank Stephen because he he uh, um, he wanted to include that story in the collection. Intan, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Yes, um, thank you so much for having me, Uma. I've been speaking today to Indonesian author Intan Paramadita. She is one of the many international guests that will be featured at this year's Singapore Writers' Festival. This year's festival takes place between the 2nd and 11th of November. Be sure to check out the extensive program at singaporewritersfestival.com. I'm going to be there. I go every year and it's always a good time. Also, also go read Intan's collection. It's called Apple and Knife and it is insightful and refreshing and well worth your time. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.